The CIA's motto is the old biblical saying, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In the most basic terms, that means truth saves lives. So one of the things we wanted to do at the end of this year, our first season of Rome School. Really? Yeah. Wait, how many, how many episodes? Nine episodes. Wow. It's our first year, our first season, and we're going to catch up with a couple of old friends that we met along the way. Okay. Like who? Well, like our friend Liz, who's sitting here. Uh, who else? <laughs> I think... Chopped liver. Uh, Frank Snepp, the CIA agent. Huh. And we're going to catch up with uh, an astronomer who's going to talk to us about the gravity tractor. Do you remember what the gravity tractor was? No. Do you remember what we talked to an astronomer about with the asteroids out in space? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the main person we want to catch up with is... Liz. Is that... I, well, I kind of want to know what it is. A gravity yeah, what? You have to listen to the show. Tractor. Later in the show, All right. you'll hear about the amazing scientific wonder of a gravity tractor. But All right. in the meantime, we want to know what's happened with you since the last time we talked. You, you were kind enough to tell us your story about how you came here to the United States as a baby in Operation Baby Lift. You're listening to Rome Schooled, investigations on grown-up topics fueled by a sense of curiosity that only kids have, my kids specifically. They're seven years old. They pose the questions, and we go out without screens, and we find the answers by talking to people in person whenever possible. A few months ago, we did an episode called Where Do I Come From? It was about immigration and about discovering your personal origins. We met some people who were involved in Operation Baby Lift, in which thousands of orphans and others were airlifted in cargo planes and cardboard boxes toward the end of the Vietnam War. At the end of this episode of Rome Schooled, I promised to come back to this, because to me these people have the most incredible and still suspenseful stories that I've ever heard. Liz, our friend, is one of those Baby Lift babies. Spoiler or non-spoiler alert, these stories don't resolve in this episode. There'll be more updates. We just wanted to keep you posted on developments for our friend Liz, who was brought to the U.S. as an infant orphan, and for Frank Snepp, who was the lead intelligence officer for the CIA to the embassy in Saigon, and he has his own mystery to solve. So, the truth shall make who free is what we're going to call this episode. So... We wanted to get together and talk to Liz, catch up yeah, with her, yeah. and find out what's happened because her story wasn't completely resolved, and neither was Frank's. So we're going to check in with him right. later. I'm on really the phone. curious about him. You have a big mystery on your hands. I do. I want to do the next step. The next step is that Liz goes and finds. When we first started talking to her, she says that she contemplated whether she had family living in Vietnam, but she hadn't considered it enough to build up wonder to a point of action. She'd been informally told by her adoption agency and through her adopted parents that her mother had died in childbirth. Years later, she went back to Vietnam on a group trip that was funded by that same adoption agency. This was about 15 years ago, and that's when she started wondering if she might want to look further into her past. Mostly because I think it would be interesting to see if I had any living family or, yeah. 
we probably have some some living family, even if what they told you about your mom dying in childbirth is true, unless she was an only child. Right. You probably have some family. So yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking like cousins or brothers, sisters. Yeah, and I and I've heard people adoptees go back and um, find siblings, which is. I think still pretty pretty cool. Pretty big deal. I, mean, yeah. I don't have any siblings, so I don't know what it's like. But Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird though? Like growing up, and then you one day wake up and you meet your siblings. It'd be incredible. I don't know how close the relationship would be, but just to know that there's somebody out there. And you get to skip all the sibling rivalry stuff. Exactly. That was from our first conversation with Liz. There's a common pattern when people seek out their birth families in Southeast Asia. Some of them find relatives and some don't, but most, it seems, have to contend with this inherent imbalance between the haves and the have-nots, which strangely goes in both directions. There's this cultural disconnect where families in Vietnam tend to live together in close quarters with a whole village raising the children and collecting income. So this is a culture of haves in terms of family and connectedness, which gives us an idea of just how chaotic and affected a nation Vietnam was toward the end of the war that babies were being given up for adoption. Then there's the economic side of the have-have-not equation, which goes totally the other way. The average Vietnamese family makes the same in a year as a school teacher here makes in about a week, or a lawyer makes in a couple billable hours. So when orphans return to their birth country, it's a whole new story of haves and have-nots. The pressure is there to give money, and the pressure is there to stay connected. And if they don't find their families, there's something like the inverse of that. So then there's the issue of belonging. This trip that Liz was on 15 years ago, for some, it was eye-opening and fulfilling. For one of the people on the trip, Saul, it led to a career counseling Asian-American adoptees, and we talked to him in that episode. But another young man came back, and he committed suicide just a few months later. Why? Well, people speculated that he didn't feel like he belonged on either continent. He didn't feel American, and he didn't feel Vietnamese. But why did he just kill, kill himself if he didn't know if he was American or Vietnamese? Well, I think, I think he had a lot of... I think he had a lot of problems, and some would say that some of those problems came from... Drugs? For sure. But they also, like I mean, he maybe turned to drugs to find somewhere to belong. But Liz didn't end up that way at all. But she did land somewhere in the middle in that she's left the issue alone. She hasn't gone back to search. Um, she wasn't particularly distraught by the trip, but she also has left it, has, hasn't pursued the issue until now. On a, on a cautionary note, what about the worries about having your family ask you for money and then things go south? I would rather at least try and have that happen than not try at all. Emotionally, it's, it's big, but I don't have a lot invested yet. Hmm. You know, I'm definitely... Decided to look, but there are so many adoptees that travel back that can't find anything. You know, where do you start? You start, apparently, by finding your documentation. I don't think I have any documentation, but I don't know. But the, the hospital might. Exactly. So what's, what's the driving force here behind Liz's quest to find out more? Why was it fine before and not now? 
Why does it bother me? I didn't think it would bother me. Yeah, but it's bothering you. Yeah, because I'm a parent. I mean, think about it. <laughs> you have this child, this baby, and you're walking somewhere to drop them off. What are you going through in your mind when you're on you know? your way to relinquishment? Exactly, knowing that you are going to this place to drop off your child and walk away. Liz reached out to the Holt Adoption Agency, and she requested a complete record of her birth and adoption. I, the undersigned, Nguyen Huon, born in 1932, Saison, Sante, North Vietnam, holder of the identification card number 04015795. What you're hearing is called a relinquishment letter. Liz doesn't actually have one, but our friend Saul shared his with us. He uncovered it several years ago. It was written by his father. Dana has a much easier time reading it than I do. I cohabited with Tran T. Fong Lan for 13 months, though not legally married. From our union was born a male child named Tran La. Lan died five days after said birth. At that time, I was working as a Mason far away from home. I knew of her death only after her funeral. When I came back home, everything was over. Then I took my child to my brothers to be cared for. Now because of my poor health, I can no longer care for my child. So I agree to give him to Holt Children's Services for that organization to care and find adopted parents for him. Saigon, April 1st, 1974. Signed, Elegy. Illegibly. Illegibly. Illegible. Illegible. It's quite a letter, huh? <laughs> so, a few months later, Liz received all of her paperwork from the agency. It was 14 pages. We met up, and she shared it with us. One thing she didn't have was a relinquishment letter. So Dana explained and incredibly remembered every detail of the letter she had read several weeks before. So what did he do? He um, tried to take care of the baby, but he couldn't do it. So he gave it to his brother, I think. And then, but his brother gave it to uh, this um, place that takes care of children. Yeah, the whole adoption agency. Yeah, I don't Perfect. think you. Holds right down there. I don't think you forgot anything. Oh, no. Yeah, holds on here. So guess what we have here? We have Liz's. So like they gave me, you know, it, it all online. So you emailed. So then them. I just yeah. So I emailed them, and you have to fill out forms to see if you're even from that adoption agency. And so they obviously said that I was, and then they found all my papers. They sent them to you, and you printed them out. Well, I had to print them out, yeah, because it's all online. So, so is that your mom and dad? That would be my mom and dad in 1970. You can definitely tell. Actually, my dad still looks like that. And your parents still live in that house? Mm-hmm. It and looks different. Your mom looks so nice. So is this a picture that they submitted? Yeah, I believe so. So that, to say, hey, yeah, we'd be great that, parents? Yeah, exactly. In the beginning, their story was that it was kind of hard for them to be accepted as adoptive parents because they weren't really that religious. And so they finally, you know, argued and wrote letters and said, you know, <laughs> I think that what's more important is that we love a child, so. And then finally they... Okay. Basically, what this 14 pages says is that I was pretty much left at this maternity hospital with no papers 
or family members. And I think that um, throughout, you know, series of weeks, they, they put you in like a, a holding place to see if anybody will come claim you. And nobody did. Wow. So this piece of paper is release and consent. And it says that Holt has been authorized as a charitable association uh, and guardianship and that this paper represents consent to adopt. This is um, signed and stamped by a translator mm -hmm. and a division. These are all official stamps. I love this old typewriter. Isn't it cool? I think it, this is saying that, that it's saying that if there's a birth certificate from before, that as of February 26th, it doesn't count anymore. I am Sister Marie Vincent presently in service at Tudu Maternity Hospital. On January 27th, 1975, there is a female baby abandoned in front of our maternity hospital. She's named Nguyen. Nguyen? I can't say the rest. I think it's like Tong... Tong... Juan? She's named Nguyen. Her birth certificate has not been established yet. Now, I temporarily commit her to Holt Nutrition Center for her to be cared for. So they had a nutrition center to help Yeah, help I mean, that's where pretty much all the kids were held. And then they, I think physicians came in and did, like, a health assessment. After two months from this date, if nobody acknowledges her, Holt Nutrition Center will have full power to keep her permanently. Why, wow. why would they do that? To, to take care of her, I think. Yeah. I think in but hopes why, of finding why do a they, family. Why do they get to keep her forever? Well, permanently in this sense, I think, means for the purposes of her being an orphan. Right. Not permanent, like, until she's 42, but until they find her a home via yeah. adoptive parents. Yeah, exactly right. So pretty um, much they're giving them the authority to do that. Now, so check this out. This is crazy. This is an unhealthy child. How is that unhealthy? Well, I think that when I was a little one... She had a scar... And she had lesions on her ankles when she was a baby. Mm -hmm. What's a lesion? Like a scab. A cut. Or, yeah. An open cut. Mm -hmm. So she had scalp furunculosis. What does that mean? Your, Your throat wasn't normal. And I don't think a lot of things were normal, but my palate was. And I love that they actually have that category. Yeah. Exactly. It was that common that they were cleft palates. Paragraph B, section 3. It says, child was abandoned outside the gate of Tudu Maternity Hospital. She has been temporarily reared in the podiatry room for a long time, but nobody came to inquire about her. There was a war going on. Good but for months, you were... Just waiting. Waiting. You nobody came nobody along. Came. How does it feel to read about yourself in that way? I mean, I think it's out of a body experience, you know? It's, like it's a, somebody else I mean, to yeah, you. Yeah, it's totally somebody else. Like here, there is a category that says... See, what does it say? When and under what circumstances did the child become an orphan? And that actually says abandonment with a big old cross. Why were you abandoned? I think most likely my parents wanted a better, safer life for me, and so they left me at a maternity hospital hoping that I would get adopted. And hoping you would get cured because exactly. of all the problems. Exactly right. Exactly right. And look at how healthy she is now. And what's weird is that I'm reading all this, and I was like, should I be sad that nobody wanted to come? But you didn't have that reaction. But then I'm not sad at all. But does it hurt you to read that stuff? Yes, but not personally. Again, out of body. Like, I feel really bad for that baby. Interesting. Right? It's empathy. Yeah, for, exactly. For your previous being. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Another world away. Right. It's hard to tie it together right. to you. Right, exactly, because it's so out of my world. Obviously... Whoever found me or, you know, whatever family I came from, they obviously 
wanted a better life or a better chance. Pretty cool. Okay, growth, child's growth and development. Prenatal and birth history unknown. When first coming in Holt, child was weak and underweight, three kilograms. She also had scabies all over her body. I don't, I don't anymore. <laughs> I just want to make sure everybody knows that. Look, shout hallelujah if you've had scabies in the garden. You've had some, Dad. What? <laughs> I, I, I know, so I'm saying really? say hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> you can't even say hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you've gotten rid of your scabies. Hallelujah. Me too. So Dang, I was so happy to be so done with them. Well, what are they? Because obviously I don't remember what They're it is. They're bugs like... that bury beneath your skins and make you itch. And you have to put on this cream. They make you crazy. They make you want to kill somebody. So it's like lice but for your skin. Yeah. So you had them bad, infected, and you were a malnourished baby with mild anemia and skin infection. But you didn't have syphilis. She is not reared in center two. Her health is getting better. Um, usually cries by feeding time to ask for milk. She often gets... <laughs> Chapter four. Social... Oh, I know. <laughs> okay. Read this one. So this says, social relationships. Child looks happy and joyful, usually smiles, lovely and babbles a little after sucking her fill. <laughs> what is babbles? Like cooing. Babies just kind of like, they don't know words yet, so they're like, yeah, exactly. Mm. Isn't completely Death odd. of mother, death of father. Why wouldn't you have any more relatives? Well, that's a good question. You might, but they might, might be scattered. So the, I, I think yeah. that's interesting, Dana. You've pointed that's out really good point. that abandonment is checked, mm -hmm. but there's six yeah. reasons that Holt would take mm -hmm. people in at the maternity hospital. Right. And one was death of a mother, the mm -hmm. other was death of a father, and then released by the mother, which means the mother would come in and, and relinquish the child, and then other. others specify. Right. But there's nothing else checked except for the box that says abandonment. One. So your mom, if she's still alive, mm -hmm. might be hard to find, or maybe she's okay and has um, I think joined that database. Who I knows? I hope so. I think it's more impossible than I, than I thought. I mean, than I was hoping. You know what I mean? Because I think that every record that I've seen is pretty much Mystery. she was left, she had no papers, she had no, you know, relatives or family looking for her, which is fine, but, you know. My thought on this is that people will be found if they want to be found. So a few months went by. And in the meantime, I received a book in the mail by Frank Snepp. We talked to him a few episodes back about the end of the Vietnam War, the same set of events that brought Liz to the United States. He was there for five and a half years as chief intelligence advisor to Ambassador Warren in Saigon. And he played a key role in getting people out in the end. He was one of the architects of Operation Babylift. The first book he wrote about all of this brought him a lot of trouble. And to this day, everything he writes is censored and has to go through the CIA for approval quite a hurdle in his career as an investigative journalist. Frank's second book, Irreparable Harm, is the one I just got in the mail. It's the story of that struggle with censorship, but it also reveals some new truths that Frank couldn't publish in the first book. For example, the fact that Frank may have a son in Vietnam. He fathered this child with a woman he calls My Lee. Suddenly, she disappeared in the spring of 1973, zip gone. Her friends giggled and said she'd gotten pregnant again. Her firstborn had been killed in an American airstrike. 
Two years passed before she showed up at my door with a baby boy in her arms and a sly smile on her lips. I still have a picture of the three of us from that time, that brief five-day reunion that would commit me forever. Miley is standing at the head of her dinner table, gazing serenely at the camera like the lady of the manor as I lift the baby awkwardly with both hands as if fearful of breaking it. Almost immediately after that picture was taken, she and the child disappeared again, not to resurface until the day before the evacuation. And on that very last day of American occupation of Saigon, Mai Lin showed up and found Frank. She was carrying the boy that he had fathered. Mai Lin told Frank that she needed to get out so badly that if he couldn't get her on one of these helicopters... She begged me to get her out and said she would kill herself and the child if I didn't. This was the end of the Vietnam War. And with the Viet Cong coming in to take over Saigon, Frank had to take Mai Lin's threat seriously. But could she really have done that? The child was born, I had met the child, and she had brought the child with her. When she called me at the embassy, I genuinely uh, intended to get her out. The problem was, instead of saying in that moment, I'm coming to get you, I said, call me uh, in a day or so, and I'm going to arrange your departure. She did, she missed, I missed her call, and the evacuation went into its final phase. And I live with the horrible possibility that she killed herself and the child whom she said was mine because I couldn't get them out. So I put a very human priority, getting her and the child to an evacuation place, uh, a, a pickup point. I put that on hold in deference to what I thought was a more immediate duty, which was to serve the ambassador and the larger American political interest in Vietnam. It's a choice a lot of Americans made there, and the result was often the kind of tragedy that I experienced, the horror that I experienced when I discovered I could not reach this woman and her child. Obviously, he wanted to get them out, but he missed the call. I missed the call. It was that simple, and I agonized to this day over my choice in having put her in a sense down my list of priorities and and doing what Americans often did in Vietnam was to which was to serve the cause and forget the human cost. So for me it was emblematic of the kind of dilemma that faced Americans in Vietnam, often a dilemma they solved the wrong way by putting political interests, the mission interests first, and not the human imperatives of saving other people. But Frank did save people, and he helped get a lot of people out of Vietnam in the final moments. In the long run, because of his books, Frank brought a lot of truth to our understanding of how we think about Vietnam. And it's kind of ironic for two reasons. For one thing, the CIA's motto was, the truth shall make you free. Yet, everything that Frank wrote, to this day, is censored. The other reason that it's ironic is that Frank Snepp had to censor himself when writing about Mai Lin and his son for their safety. And for those same reasons, Frank continues to be very guarded about whether or not they survived. He writes about it vaguely, but very movingly, in Irreparable Harm, his second book. To sum up 
this part of Frank's story late in the last day of Frank's time in Vietnam as the final chaos unfolded. A South Vietnamese cop who was a friend of Frank's was incoherent with fear for his own life when he reported to Frank that on his way to safety, he'd seen My Lin lying on a pallet. Was she just sleeping? Frank doesn't know, and we may never know. I asked Frank if he would ever take part in a search. Well, of course I would participate. And in fact, that's why I've given interviews about this, because I want to encourage everyone who is in a position to go and lend assistance to the Vietnamese we left behind. Whether or not you find a loved one or a mother or a child is, uh, I won't say immaterial, but it's secondary to the larger purpose of simply helping out. And in the process, you may resolve your own problems. But I can assure you that your friend will feel a lot better about herself if she becomes an actor in making other people's lives better and perhaps helping others, even if she can't find her mother or even if she can't find to help someone else find their helpmates. My feeling is if you bury something, uh, it will rise again to haunt you. I feel that talking things out and addressing truth, again, is the great palliative. It's the way to, to ease your soul. Your friend, the more she learns, or she will be able to put herself in the service of others. So while Frank's search for truth and life's work involves undoing some of the harm that was done in Vietnam, some people's search involves the kind of truth that we find buried in our genes little chemical combinations, the microscopic building blocks that contain the truthful information about who we are. Right now, lately, I have been doing um, DNA testing. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah. So I did um, some samples in my cheek. Why in your cheek? I think that if you swab your cheek, that you can get um, as much sample as you need to test for your DNA. So I took a little sample and I put it in this little vial in liquid and I sent it in to see if I have any family members and also to see what nationality I am. Am I completely Vietnamese or do I have some American in me? Caucasian, I don't know how to say that. Mm, yes. I won't be offended if you say Amercasian. Right. <laughs> white bread. Yeah, it's hard for us white people to get offended, really. We, we have no right to be offended for the most part. Um, so you yeah. are... Curious about whether your father was a soldier. Right. How did this come about? All of this? Yeah. This whole mystery. Honestly? Yeah. Well, you guys. Really interesting. Really? Yeah. So, you know. Come on. Yeah. I mean, like, I was just living my life normally. And then... Well, we wanted to hear interesting immigration stories because we had asked what the Statue of Liberty was all about. And that led us to asking about immigration. And then we wanted to hear interesting stories about immigration. And your husband said, I don't know if this counts, but my wife right. was part of Operation Baby Lift. So I contacted you, and then you guys came over and asked me questions about being from Vietnam. But all we're doing is talking right. to people and gather stories. Right, but the thing is that I wouldn't have even researched any of this information if it hadn't been brought up to my attention. 
We didn't bring it to your attention. But you did. You know your story. Yeah, I know my story, but I didn't. Is it because the girl? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like here I am, my normal life. I already know my story. That's great. But then you didn't like pick up your story, like. You asked me enough questions to make me um, curious. To make you curious. Yeah. Absolutely. Because honestly, it's like. So here I am living my life. I already know my story. There's nothing more to it. That's just what I know. And then when I met you guys, you opened my eyes to all the possibilities out we there. We didn't open your eyes but to you anything. Did, though, because if I hadn't like talked to you guys, I would have just been in the same place that I was before that. I would have never, ever had thought to look for family members or even, you but know. You know, it's interesting when you... Really, really... When you ask people questions, whether they're trying to figure out a scientific problem or if they're trying to figure out where they came from, sometimes you just ask this most simple question and it has unexpected results. And that's exactly what happened. I, I mean, really and truly, I, I, I'm not just saying that. Really and truly. So. I don't know if we want that kind of responsibility, Liz. <laughs> no, but it's a good one. I think I think any kind of any kind of growth and information and new information is, you know, it's important. I would have never known that I wanted to look for it. You see what I'm saying? Frank Snepp said that I mean, it's better to know than to not know. Exactly. That's exactly it. But he's... And com- even if it's bad news, that's okay. I mean, there's no bad news. But even if, the, if, even if I don't find anything, then but, that's okay. But what if it is bad news? That's okay, too. At least what I if, know. What if you are predisposed to an illness that you can't cure? Okay, I never thought of that. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking... <laughs> I'm serious. Really? Yeah. What if you find out that you have an illness, or what if you find out that you are the daughter of of somebody that you don't have any respect for? That's tough. But you gotta you gotta look. You gotta try. Mm-hmm. And you just say, "Sounds good to meet you, but you're not you're not my people." <laughs> I'm kind of trying not to get my hopes up either. So whatever whatever answers come, it's gonna be good. I will know who my real parents are. And you'll know that you want to like them. You want to like them? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. You're you're supposed to want to like your Exactly, you're supposed to want to. That's a good point, but you don't get to choose your parents, you know? But your parents sometimes get to choose you, as Liz's adopted parents did. And she grew up an only child, as I did, forever thankful to have such amazing parents who loved her and cared about her in every way. Liz's main reservation about diving into this whole birth parents mystery was that she didn't want to hurt the feelings of her adopted parents. She was great. She actually gave me a check and she's like, buy a ticket. And I never take money from my parents. It did not hurt her feelings, I take it. No. So it was really, it was really... Wonderful and heartbreaking That's and touching. amazing and yeah. so she's pretty. She's been pretty amazing. But honestly, I was scared to tell her because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So back to discovering the truth and this biblical phrase: "The truth shall make you free." Well, in that phrase, who is the subject? Who's the you? And then, what's the truth? Is it knowledge, or is it a decision, or the end of a myth or misunderstanding? Or is it just true knowledge of how to deal with adversity? In The Truth Shall Set You Free, right. who's you? Because the truth could, could snag you up. It could, and it, but that's okay. That's okay. I like a little, what's the word? Ripple. 
in life. What's a ripple? What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? What kind of ripple? Well, I like swimming. <laughs> <laughs> well, the ripple could be anything. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be... Nothing. What do you mean by ripple? Do you mean a ripple in water, or do you mean a ripple like a Meta- change or like... Yes, yes, exactly right. Like the water change. could be still, and then you make a ripple. It's different. Have you guys had any ripples? Uh, yeah. What? Tell me. Moving! We were going to see our new school. We were playing outside, and then and I was just happily walking along, and Mom said, I want to tell you something, and she said, we're moving. And, I, and then I started crying. I'm oh. like, out of out of the sippy cup house? And she's like, yes. The sippy cup house is what you call the house that you lived in with your mom. And then I started crying. So your mom and I thought for a long time about how to tell you guys the news that you were going to move from her house over here on Michigan up to your new house. Right? How come you didn't just tell us? Well, I, I was fine with it the way mom told me. You were. I, actually, you were fine with it the way your mom told you. But Vern said it was tough for her. I was actually thinking, I advocated that we should tell you gradually and in a very organized manner over time. Like how? Like through a series of meetings. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't really have it figured out. But your mom just told you, and then you knew the truth. And if that was your ripple, and that was you learning the truth, in some ways it set me and your mom free so that we didn't have to worry anymore about how you were going to deal with it, or whether it was going to be hard for you. So your mom and I didn't have to worry anymore about how to tell you. You knew the truth, and so we were free. What do you mean? I mean, we didn't have to think about how to tell you anymore, because there's a time to tell people stuff. So you have to just be okay with the ripple and the light? Well, you were eventually okay with it, right? But the thing is, you found out the truth, and you dealt with it. And it was kind of hard, but now you're free. So if the truth shall make you free, the the question is, that's just something from the Bible. I, I don't know how much faith we can put in that expression. But if the truth shall make you free, who is you? You? The, <laughs> who does it make free? The receiver of the truth? The person who's hearing the truth? Or the person who's telling the truth? Both. Why both? Because um, the person who's telling you, they don't have to worry about having to tell you in a certain way. And what about the person who's receiving the truth? They can just deal with it over time. What if you, your whole life you thought one thing about yourself... And then somebody said, you know, Veronica, you actually are half baboon. Everyone's half baboon. Everyone? That's, that's where we came from. I think it would be crazy. You've got a rosy... You kind of deal with pretty much any ripple. Update. You're getting email alerts that they've received your DNA material. And they're... Processing it exactly, and then I just will check like every like five times a day. Yeah. I check all the time. So there's a national database where if people are interested in finding out if they have any other family members out there, what if your parents did not do it, then then there wouldn't be a connection or a hit. But I think not just parents. Like there could be cousins out there, or there could be siblings. I wonder if you do have a sister. I've always wondered the same thing, too. 
I've always wanted one. That um, would be really, really weird. So you might meet a sister. You might meet a mom. You might meet a cousin. Right. But if I don't even meet anybody, that's okay. Because the point is that I've, I've gone a next step. What, so how long ago did you do the DNA test? I did that um, last Saturday. It, this is weird, but I waited to do it on my birthday just because it was sentimental. So there's some ritual involved. Yeah, this. what if my birthday wasn't on Saturday? See what I'm saying? Uh, the birthday that you celebrate. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. So 42 years later, yep. and no attempt has been made in 42 years by you or your family. Correct. But now we've got the internet and we have right. DNA testing. That's the other thing is that there's so many other factors and so many other... Um, did it, was it scary to send off your personal DNA information? That's a good question. Mm, no, it's more exciting. And yeah. in a month, you'll yeah. get... I'm so curious. I know. <laughs> it's really weird. Isn't that crazy Dad, to not know? What, ha- what would happen if it was a scam and you... Good question. That is a good question. <laughs> I love it. Well... There are things that happen like that all the time. One thing is that they could be making false matches, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you could always have it validated by right. another another test later. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, they could maybe do they could pull a scam where they take money to put you in touch with people or something, and then those people turn out to be not your real people. Yeah, or not yeah. even. So, are you going to take precautions against that? Well, I actually kind of researched all of the different agencies that are out there. And there's pretty much three big ones. Hmm. And they all kind of share a national database, which is good because all of their information kind of goes into this one um, database. So, What if it turns out that there's, <laughs> there's a match? Then I'm going to be so excited. And you're going to go meet them? really scared. I never thought about that. Isn't that funny? I never thought about what if it actually turns out that I find somebody. Really? Yeah. Well, you'd want to go meet them, right? Absolutely. Even though you know that there's caveats there. And, and, the, and the thing I really want to do when I go back is to go back to the place where um, I was left. That makes sense. So it was, it was where you, And you've been there before. I have. But you were not at that point where you were really asking the hard questions. Exactly. Were it was you just, holding a baby for like a really, really, really I was holding a baby. How did you know? Uh, because you told me, I think. <laughs> How do you remember that? You said mm-hmm. she did, whenever you put her down, she started to cry, so you had to hold her for a while. You have an amazing memory, and I did. I loved it. Well, in preparation for going back, are you going to write some letters and get in touch with some of the nuns at the oh, yeah, maternity sure. hospital? Yeah. And... That's a nun. It's the ladies who take care of people when they're sick, and they've got these big pointy hats with, like, <laughs> yeah, that's some, right. some ribbon. So, the truth shall make who free. The final chapter for this episode. Remember Joe Massiero, the astronomer who maps and catalogs the near-Earth objects that just might hit us, throwing our planet into global apocalyptic chaos? If you didn't listen to it already, check out the End of Days episode. Joe told us that they have the solar system pretty much mapped out. So 94% of the objects have been identified based on projections of what scientists predict are out there. And none of these objects appear to be bulleting through space with the Earth as their target. Maybe there's some refrigerator-sized rocks which could wreak havoc in a city or county, but no mountain-sized rocks which could make humans into the next dinosaurs. This is good news. But we thought about it, and that remaining 6% really started to bug us. So 
on a routine behind-the-scenes tour of NASA's laboratory in Washington, D.C. This is one of the perks of Rome schooliness. We got to see this amazing project called ARM, the Asteroid Redirect Mission. It's this truck-sized contraption that they're going to send into space that will grab rocks. It's a gravity tractor. Our friend Joe mentioned that this method of steering asteroids away from being the stars of disaster documentaries was in development, but we couldn't really picture it until now. And we actually got to put our hands on one, or a model of one. The project, ARM, Asteroid Relocation Mission, is now a real physical thing. We put some pictures up at the website, so if you're listening and you're having a hard time imagining the spacecraft, check them out at romeschool.com. Did those arms actually, like, reach out and grab the boulder? My name is Kelly Fast. I am the program manager for the Near-Earth Object Observations program at NASA headquarters. And I'm Dan Masnick. Um, I'm serving as the mission investigator for the Asteroid Redirect Mission at Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. So everything in the universe is gravitationally attracted to everything else, right? Even as we sit in this room, um, there's a minuscule force that attracts us, but the Earth's gravity just drowns that out. But in space, when you have small gravity forces, you can affect the trajectory of something. So with the gravity tractor, we take advantage of that law of gravitational attraction by keeping the spacecraft holding position that law of attraction says something's got to give, and that something that gives is the asteroid. And it moves slightly in its trajectory, but if you do that long enough, you can make it move off of the path um, if, there, if we were to find one that was on an impact course with the Earth. The subtitle of this episode we're working on right now is called The Truth Shall Make Who Free. The basic thread through this is that the more you know, the better off you are. 94% of these asteroids that would cause catastrophic problems have been, have been mapped out, and we shouldn't really worry too much about an end-of-day situation from an asteroid. Is that, is that true? Those large uh, asteroids that, that could have global impact should uh, uh, one of them hit, they're a lot easier to find because the larger an asteroid is, the brighter it is, the easier it's to, uh, it is to see it in a telescope, in our, our survey telescopes. Uh, by using models, we can estimate the population of asteroids out there. And so we find them and catalog them, keep track of them, update the orbits. We're not currently tracking anything that is on an impact trajectory with Earth. But as you go to smaller asteroids uh, in size, when you get down to a, a, a less than a kilometer in size, there are more and more of them that need to be found. And so, so the effort goes on to keep finding them and tracking them. There are um, uh, things that are tracked way off into the future that maybe have uh, very, 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 very small probabilities of, of even impacting. And so they're not even up at the level where, you know, maybe we'd start worrying about something if it got to the, the 1%. Uh, probability and, and, and we're not even there and so for all of these objects and just to find out more um, uh, the JPL Center for Near-Earth Object Studies uh, there at uh, neo.jpl.nasa.gov 
there's stuff going by us all the time, but space is big, and so whatever we can see and track, those get listed on that website also of things that maybe made, make a close approach. A close approach to the Earth might be something uh, that is within a few uh, lunar distances of the Earth, and, and to be honest, that's at NASA, we really don't start notifying like our, our public affairs people about questions that might come in until it's something that maybe comes within the distance to the moon, which is still pretty far. And even then, we're not really concerned until an object might pass within like the, the geosynchronous satellite ring. There was an object a while back that uh, came through and uh, it, it did go uh, uh, by, uh, interestingly, by some of the uh, direct TV satellites. So <laughs> that would have been an interesting. Uh, <laughs> Really, there, there's nothing for people to worry about because the, the best thing we can do is just find them, track them, understand them, and uh, in, in parallel, develop uh, techniques like the, like the gravity uh, tractor technique that Dan told you about. And, and that's all we can do at this point, so we're doing what needs to be done. This is good news. But even better than that, we saw one of the actual spacecraft that will redirect these asteroids, and it's a thing of beauty. It has these giant solar panels that stretch out hundreds of yards in either direction. And it has three arms for hugging a space rock and using it, gravitationally speaking, against an even bigger rock. It's not just a gravity tractor, it's called an enhanced gravity tractor, which is even cooler. Um, the gravity tractor is a very, what we call a slow push-pull technique, and it's very gentle but that also means it takes time. Um, if you have about a decade of warning time, you typically need somewhere in the order of about a centimeter per second of, of velocity change. But the asteroid is very, very massive, tens of millions of tons of material. So the idea with when we go into the enhanced gravity tractor mode, which is what we call it, we call it EGT, and what that means is that we're enhancing the gravitational force by using the boulder. So we can take a 10-ton spacecraft and we can turn it into a 500-ton spacecraft and increase that attraction and get that time way down. The other part is getting there. How do we get there as quickly as possible? First of all, we have to know that the object is gonna impact the Earth because space is a big place and there's no point in moving stuff around for planetary defense if it's not gonna hit you. But we're gonna learn how to move large masses around the solar system for other reasons using asteroid resources for exploration. Um, and that's part of the asteroid redirect mission is bringing back a multi-ton boulder. We're talking about bringing something back that's about 20 tons from a target called 2008 EV-5. And 20 tons, it's about, about the size of three bull elephants. And the size of the boulder will be about the size of a single elephant, about 11 feet um, in length. Dan explains that in some situations, the boulder moves around the asteroid steering it but not always what we think of as an orbit. You're basically kind of what we call station keeping. Um, you're flying, kind of formation flying around the sun with the asteroid. But Way to we, look at it might be if you had um, uh, a magnet and you brought it close to something and how it would start to tug on you know, some metal object. It's, this is happening with gravity instead. Right, it's an invisible, it's kind of like your Star Trek tractor beam. Um, hmm. Maybe not quite as powerful. Um, unless we get a lot of mass. <laughs> um, but, but if you think about it, you are pulling a, a very large mass. The way we get the boulder off the surface is we have two robotic arms and a, and, and a couple grippers 
that will grab and anchor to the boulder. And on an asteroid, because the gravity is so low, if you were standing on it and you squatted down and you jumped, um, you would at least get into orbit, if not escape from the gravitational field of the asteroid. That's how low the gravity is. You can't walk around on an asteroid. You have to use very, very slow motion that um, keeps you in contact with the, uh, with the surface. But how do you know that it's a boulder, a single rock that's coherent as opposed to just a clump of clods of space dust? We haven't been to a lot of asteroids and the type that we're going to is called a, a carbonaceous asteroid. Um, we have not yet visited those. We are, we have two spacecraft in route right now. Japan has the Hayabusa 2 probe and NASA has the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft which just launched in September. Um, and they're going to two carbonaceous asteroids, so we're going to learn a lot more about those before we do the ARM mission. We expect that the boulder is, is strong enough that we can pick it up and that it's not adhered to the surface. We call it a cohesion, that the cohesion of the regolith, and which is the kind of the space soil, um, that it's not, it's not connected to the asteroid too much. By, by robotically, you mean this thing is going to be smart enough to be able to identify the coherent boulder that, on this, this hard asteroid and figure out, okay, there's not dust there, there's not a big pile of dust. This thing's smart enough to see it? Does it see it itself? Well, it, we're going to help that part of it. We're going to pick the boulder and then we're going to build these maps so that the robotic system can use a technique called terrain relative navigation. And it's what we use here on Earth for a lot of aircraft to navigate based on what the terrain is like. So we're gonna tell it to go get Boulder X. It's gonna go down to the surface, um, collect that boulder, and lift back off the surface. And it has to do that completely by itself. Um, before then, we'll be in control, and then afterwards, we'll be in control to do the fine-tuning of the, uh, the spacecraft once the boulder's off the surface. But because of communication delays, the, the plan is to, to not have any human intervention during the capture process. What if the gravity tractor didn't work? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, huh? Yeah. Well, for the movie version, it can't work, right? I mean, something has to break. But this thing is incredibly engineered. It's years in the making by, obviously, some of the smartest people. But when you look at it, it's astounding. There are these three long, slender arms that are multi-pivoted. And at the end of these contraptions are these spinning wheels that have a hundred or so of these feet on them. And the feet, if you look at them real closely, and there's a picture on our website, each pad, like a giant gecko's foot, has thousands of little tiny hooks that are as sharp as fishing hooks, but they're all right next to each other. And they take on the contour of the rock. The little um, fingers on the arms of the gravity tractor, they look like Velcro, but the other side of the Velcro isn't on the asteroid, so how are they gonna stick? Those little hooks, um, they hold the boulder while we anchor, we drill basically, and from both of our hands, we extend out a drill anchor bolt, and that provides the hard contact surface. Should I have this straight? What, how, what are they going to do exactly? They're going to get an asteroid that weighs about three bull elephants. And they're going to get a boulder from the asteroid 
that is as big as one elephant, and they're okay. gonna put it, <laughs> and they're gonna put it in orbit around the asteroid. Using this orbit, they're gonna change the course of the asteroid and bring it back to Earth. We're not gonna go so far as to bring it back in the atmosphere. We're gonna bring that multi-ton boulder back to a location around the moon, a stable orbit that we can then send humans out to what we call the Asteroid Redirect Crewed Mission. Um, it's gonna take our space launch system and Orion capsule, and they're gonna go farther than the astronauts did in the Apollo days, but we're gonna rendezvous with that boulder in what we call cis-lunar space, so the area around the moon. They're gonna test out EVA techniques and then rendezvous and docking techniques. We're gonna sample the, the boulder. You can think of it as kind of a, an orbiting laboratory. Hopefully we'll have other missions We'll have international partners and maybe even industry partners that would want to go out and start testing mining techniques. We're searching for water. That's one of the, the mantras of NASA is to find water through the solar system. And we know that there's water on asteroids from the meteorites that we get that come to Earth. But we've never visited and explored the depths of a boulder or the material out in space. Because once you go through the atmosphere, it heats up, stuff burns off. Um, we want to go to a pristine surface. When we get to that boulder with the crew, we can take core samples and we can look at the stratigraphy. We can look and say, hey, okay, there's no water in the first five centimeters or so, but look at all the water once you get down below the, the dry crust. What's this rock going to be called once it's in orbit around the moon? Do you have a name for it already, or is this going to be... Who, who gets to name this thing? Because what an amazing concept. Yeah, that'll, that'll be an interesting discussion. I'm sure we will name it. Um, we haven't even named the parent body, that, the, the target asteroid that we're going to. It's called 2008 EV-5. Um, but certainly there will be a, a contest or a, a process by which we figure out how to name, name the asteroid. And I'm sure we will name the boulder as well. We would really like to help with that. Yeah. Even just getting the word out about the contest because people... People should know about this ARM mission. It's incredible. I guess I'm being, it's like saying ATM machine. It's an AR mission, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Asteroid redirect mission. Okay, I can't help myself. I have the name People Exploring and Transporting Rocks That Are Orbiting Closely, or uh, the acronym for that is Pet Rock. Other ways of redirecting asteroids include hitting it really hard with something, landing on it, and throwing things off of it, and nuclear explosions. All of these, like the Pet Rock Project, I mean the Asteroid Redirect Mission, take advantage of the simplest of Newton's laws of motions, but played out through the most careful calculations down to one one millionth of a degree of trajectory, speed, force, etc. Basically we want a planetary defense toolbox and just like any good toolbox you have different types of tools. Well and there's the, the simplest technique along with the gravity tractor there's another technique called the kinetic impactor which is essentially uh, crashing something into an object in order to change its trajectory. And, and there is another mission concept called DART, the double asteroid redirect test, that is looking at the idea of, of sending an impactor to a moonlet of the asteroid called Didymos just to see how much 
uh, we could change the uh, the orbital period of that little moonlet packed. Yeah, and the DART mission is is part of um, a larger mission that NASA is doing in concert with the European Space Agency, and they have the AIM spacecraft, which is an orbiting spacecraft that will be there when the DART spacecraft hits Diddy Moon. So this is called the AIDA mission, the Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment. It's like cosmic billiards. So just we just need to remember that arms are for hugging rocks in space and darts are for throwing stuff at rocks in space. Those are the two main ways that we're going to save the world. Yep. And, and there, there are others. We may need some of these other techniques in the future if we ever needed the really big hammer in our toolbox, the sledgehammer. Sledgehammer, of course, stands for spaceships leaving Earth dragging globally environmentally harmful atomic missiles to mitigate errant rocks. It's not really what it stands for. I just get close to the end of these episodes, and I'm so deep in the subject matter, and these NASA scientists get to make up cool acronyms all the time. So this was my chance. And the kids aren't here to tell me how corny my acronyms were. In case you're wondering, I have the kids half the time. It's always been that way, but that's a subject for a future episode. I'm finishing up this episode without them here. I'm going to bed free from the worry that I might be awoken in the middle of the night by a catastrophic asteroid collision because we now know the truth. Not only have we identified the asteroids, but if new ones that we haven't identified get close, we have several ways of exploding them or hugging them into submission. And on that simple truth, I want to say thanks for listening to Rome School. And also, I want to thank Kelly Fast and Dan Masnick, both scientists at NASA, and Maggie Massetti at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, who gave us an amazing tour. I want to thank Frank Snepp for telling the world the truth about Vietnam and his two books, Decent Interval and Irreparable Harm, and for sharing his personal story with us. And I want to thank Liz Bergstrom, who's bravely moving into the world of the unknown and sharing her discovery with us. Rome School is produced and written by me, Jim Brunberg, with a lot of camaraderie, ideation, friendly chiding, design, concept, and website production from Lydia Ritchie. The music is made by me and Ben Landsberg, a.k.a. Wonderling. Please subscribe and like our podcast in iTunes and visit our Facebook page and or our website, romeschool.com, where there is more info, pictures, and opportunities to roam with us by asking your questions. And when you're not spending time in front of those screens that I just told you to go look at, follow your curiosity. And if you're lucky enough, you'll have some kid along for the ride or somebody who acts like one.